think that is everything. So let us go to the word uh, and pray together. We're going to be looking at Psalm 15 this morning, so uh, let me, let's read it together. Follow along as I read. Hear now the word of the Lord. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart, and does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at, at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let us pray together. Our fathers, we look to your word today. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would hide the teacher behind yourself, Lord, and that you would speak directly to our hearts through uh, these words of this psalm. We thank you, Jesus, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Let me start off with a question for you. Uh, when you were on your way to church today, what was going through your mind? What were you thinking about? It's cold. Valid. Lunch. Oh, don't start talking about food now. I'm sorry? A good word. If you're like me, you're probably humming the tune in your head. Oh, get me to the church on time. <laughs> Scrambling to get here. Oftentimes there are screams in the, mi in the midst of that. I got to get there. Ah! <laughs> Psalm 15 serves as a, a bit of a prelude that would prepare worshipers to come to the tabernacle or to, to the place of worship. So as a person, as a worshiper, was on their way to the place of worship, this psalm that David wrote served as a way to bring our thoughts uh, to where they should be. Uh, obviously, you know, as humans, we're going to get, uh, our mind is going to go all over the place, especially if you have squirrels in your brain like I do. Uh, it's cold. I need to get there on time. Uh, please, Lord, let them have everything ready when we get to Dunkin' so I don't have to wait, you know, all, all of those things. Um, but this, this psalm served as a, as I said, a prelude to prepare worshipers when they come to God's house to worship, to kind of hone their thoughts towards uh, worshiping the Lord and being in God's presence. Now, if you will allow me just for a few moments, I'd like to play professor here and uh, go through some of the structural, uh, the, well, I'll just say the structure of, of Psalm 15. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we see here is a sort of a question-answer method. We know it today as catechism, 
Um, there's the Westminster Catechism. There are other catechisms that are used, tools to teach young believers uh, the ways of the Lord. It's a question-answer. Uh, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to love God. Uh, to Oh, my goodness. I cannot believe I'm stumbling over this. Thank you. What is the chief end of man to enjoy, to love and enjoy, to love God and enjoy him forever, correct? Thank you. I don't know why my brain is stalling on that. Uh, you know, another one is what is sin? Sin is that which separates us from God. So this psalm served as kind of that, a, a catechism, if you will, to prepare our thoughts. It's a common practice in the Middle East uh, to use this question-answer format. Uh, in Psalm 15 specifically, we have the question in verse 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? That's the question. And then there are answers that follow after. And they, they come in pairs, and the structure of this is a, of Psalm 15 is a positive negative. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth uh, in his heart who does not slander with his tongue. Now, as you'll see, they, they come in pairs also, uh, a pair of answers. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, that's a pair. He who speaks the truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue, that's a pair. And so we have this question, answer, you know, uh, answering comes in pairs. Uh, and here specifically, we have a positive negative aspect. And then the, the last verse uh, serves as a summary of it all. Um, you, we also have, as I said, uh, within the pairs, there is a, what is known as an A-B combination. Uh, so who, who shall sojourn in your tent? A, he who walks blamelessly. B, and does what is right. A, speaks the truth in his heart. B, and does, does not slander with his tongue. So you see the back and forth that kind of go, goes there. So here is the question, and perhaps this is one that we should ask ourselves on the way to church on Sunday. Who is worthy? Who can come? Who can enter? Who can come into the house of the Lord? And the psalmist asks this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill. The question is phrased, I think it's very interesting the way that he phrases it. Because it's almost like it's phrased in a way that says he's not sure if he qualifies. And I think it recognizes that outside of God's gracious invitation, in the state that we are in, in our sinful state, we know that we don't belong that we are not worthy to enter God's presence. I think this is why we see in the garden, after um, the fall of man, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and sinned, when God came to the garden looking for them, what did they do? They hid. Because they knew immediately that they were not worthy to stand in his presence. I don't know about you, but there have been many times in my life where I'm driving in my car or at home listening to music, and I just get the overwhelming sense of God's holiness, of God's perfection. And it does not take long for me to realize my unholiness, my imperfection, and I immediately feel 
I'm not worthy to be in God's presence. And yet the great thing about Christianity is that through Jesus, God invites us to come. There is this great verse in, um, in John chapter 7 where uh, Jesus goes to the, this festival and it says on John 7.37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And I think there were probably many people there saying, what are you talking about? This is, we just had seven days of a festival, of a feast. What do you mean come to you if we're thirsty? But that is the invitation. Of course, he was not talking about physical drink. Those who are thirsty spiritually, come and drink. So we see in, in the, first, uh, the first verse here, the opening question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? It's interesting the way that it's listed because on the first question seems very temporary. Who can sojourn in your tent? A tent is not a permanent dwelling, and the word sojourn is not a, any kind of permanent status. But then the second question does have a, a bit of permanence to it. Who can dwell on your holy hill. So we have this dynamic being built of temporary yet permanent. And the psalmist asks, who can, and, and perhaps maybe he's asking, who can come for a time or, or who can come and live on your holy hill? And I think the way that he words this here is that we, he, he recognizes that his unworthiness Living on God's holy hill is the goal, but I am unworthy. Could I just stay for a little bit? And so we have this dynamic being built. Now, to answer this question, uh, as I said before, there are pairs, and it would have been smart to go through the pairs. However, I want to break this down into four subsections that I got from one of the, some of the research I did. This comes from a guy named Kidner. Um, his commentary is in the library if you want to look at it later. Uh, but he breaks this down into four different categories. And so to answer this question, I want to look at these four subsections. Number one, who, who can, oh Lord, who can sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The person whose character is true. Verse two says, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart. These verbs here are life verbs. Who can walk? And typically, when we're talking about the context of Scripture, the word walk refers to our life, our walk with Jesus, how we live our lives. So this term is referencing our lives. If we live our life in a way that is blameless, um, then our character is true. Uh, righteous, or to be right, is a legal term, and this is very interesting to me. This is a legal term that does not mean sinless. It means guiltless. It does not mean sinless. It means guiltless. So when it says, does what is right, it is a recognition of our sin, and yet a recognition that God renders us guiltless, that he 
makes a way for our sin to be forgiven. And so these verbs used, that are used here, walk, does, speak, this is how a person is defined. When we think about, uh, when we think about how we judge each other, it's usually on the way that we live or what we say or, how we, or the actions that we do, how we carry ourselves. And so God says here in Psalm 15, in this verse, that our character, who we are as a person, needs to be true. Proverbs 28.18 says, Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 9, says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And so our character needs to be true. Verse 3. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Our words need to be restrained. Jesus said in the Gospels that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let me say that again. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the words that you say do not necessarily come from your brain, but come from the very core of who you are. Now, I don't know about you, but that realization makes me want to get on my knees and repent right now. <laughs> because if my speech is an indicator of my heart, that is not good. Our words reflect the core of who we are. If we have hate in our hearts, that is what's going to come out of our mouths. And the scripture says that God is intolerant of those who destroy others with their words. Our speech is an indicator of the heart. It is truly, our speech truly acts as a, as a transparency to look inside. The things that we say come from the heart. So let me say this. Every word that you speak, now let me back up. Every person that you meet is made in the image of God. 100%. There are no exceptions. If you meet a human being, they are made in the image of God. And because of that, they are worthy of respect. And that starts with the way that we speak to one another. You know, we live in, a, in an age now where we can easily hide behind a keyboard and say the most vile things to each other and think that there's no repercussions. God is intolerant of those who destroy others with words. Proverbs chapter 10 
starting in verse 11, says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Proverbs 15.1 15, says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. My friends, I cannot make this point enough. And I'm, I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to anyone else. But the words that we say are an indicator of our hearts, and we need to be careful. Now, I'd like to make a special point here. Um, let me see if there's another slide. I don't want to get behind. Yes. Uh, I, I want to make a special point here. I, I was listening to a podcast uh, a few days ago, and... Um, one of the pastors that I try and listen to regularly, his name is Alistair Begg. He's a pastor out in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, wonderful, wonderful Bible teaching, if you ever get a chance to listen. He was speaking not on this, not on the words that we say, but um, the, the sermon he was giving was just in our interactions with each other. And he uses the example that I think ma makes the point here. He uses the example of... Um, the way that we as Christians are to react to those who are homosexual. One of the things he says is, you know, in his experience, he has found that um, the world responds one of two ways. Either they affirm it or they think it's vile and they completely demean those who are in that lifestyle. Then he goes on to say, as believers, we cannot react in either of those ways. We must, and this is not just with those who, who struggle with homosexuality. I'm talking about across the board. We need to find, choose the third option. Last week, Pastor David referenced um, the story uh, where Jesus was in the temple and the, the, uh, the Sadducees brought him a coin and they were trying to trap him and they said, you know, should we pay taxes? And they gave him this either or scenario. Yes, pay taxes, no pay taxes. And they know whichever way he answered, he was going to make one group of people mad and his ministry career would be over. And Jesus, I love, I love this, Jesus gives a third option that they didn't even know about. He takes the coin and he says, whose image, and this is a reference to uh, the second commandment, whose image is on this coin? And they say it's Caesar's. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. He gives this third option. The image of God is on you, therefore you need to give yourself to the Lord. Again, this third option. And that is what we need to do as, as believers, as followers of Jesus. When we interact with people, no matter what it is, we cannot choose the either-or scenario. We must find the third option. And our mandate from the Lord, from Scripture, is to love each other. Love each other and love those who are around us. We should want the highest good for each other. The psalmist says here, he, he, he mentions neighbors. Neighbors. And then he mentions friends. 
Verse 3, who does not slander with his tongue and does, not, and does no evil to his neighbor, that is a broad term, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, narrow. So those that we know and those that we are close with, it doesn't matter. All people in our lives, all people in our lives, we need to have the interaction of love with them. Verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person, uh, excuse me, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Our allegiance needs to be clear-cut. In our, uh, I'll use the term here, squishy evangelicalism today, we seem to not want to take a stand on anything. And here's, here's what, here it is. We need to stand with the Lord. Those things that he says that he despises, those are the things that we need to despise. The things, things that he says that he loves, those are the things that we need to love. Our allegiance needs to be clear-cut. We need to hate the things that God hates and love the things that God loves. Our actions need to reflect our loyalty. And as I said earlier, this, this can be a difficult task. It is a balance that we need to strike but one that is important. Um, Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 16, says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Romans chapter 9. Excuse me, Romans chapter 12, verse 9. I'm getting all confused here. Paul says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And then Galatians chapter 5. But I say walk by the Spirit, there's that word again, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, I love this part, have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. We need to make our allegiance clear-cut. We need to live our lives in a way that shows that we are on God's side, that the things that he hates, we also despise. The things that he loves, that we take up as our banner. And finally, in verse 5, let me start a little bit in verse 4 here. Who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest, and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Our dealings need to be sacrificial. My friends, this is one of the greatest witnesses that we could have in a world that is completely wrapped up in itself. If we live our lives in a way that is sacrificial and charitable, people will see that and know that there is something different. Romans, again, chapter 12 in verse 10, says, Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. The way that we interact with each other, the way that we carry ourselves and live our lives, it needs to be sacrificial. I love the end of verse 4 here where it says, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Even if it hurts us, God says we need to keep our word. Even if it hurts us, we need to keep our word. Then he says, when it comes to money, we need to be charitable. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. These are Old Testament principles and laws that we need to carry with us, that our dealings with money need to be generous. So the end of verse 5 sums it all up. And I put the uh, slide up there for you to fill in, but... Uh, as it happens sometimes with when you're preparing a message, you think you're going to say one thing, and then uh, in the middle of the week after you've already turned in your bulletin stuff, the Lord says, <laughs> guess what? We're changing this. And so let me just say three quick things here to, well, maybe they won't be quick. Pastor David uh, said that his New Year's resolution was to preach shorter sermons. My New Year's resolution is to preach longer sermons. So <laughs> let, let, me, let me say three things to sum this up. Um, again, playing professor, the last part of verse 5 here uh, kind of sums up the whole thing, and that's very common in Scripture in, in Old Testament writings. Uh, the last part of it kind of sums it all up. And he says, he who does these things shall never be moved. Some uh, translations might say shall never be shaken. And we'll get into that in a minute. But I'd, I'd like to sum up our time here in, with just three things. Number one, when I look at this list, and I think about this question, who sh shall sojourn in your tent? Who can dwell in your holy hill, on your holy hill? In other words, 
Who can come into your presence, Lord? That's the essence of the question. Who can dwell in your presence? When I look at this list, I join Isaiah in chapter 6 when he says, when he is in the presence of the Lord, and he shouts, woe is me. When I look at this list, that's what I say. Woe is me. Because I know I do not live up to this. I do not measure up. As the book of Romans says, all of us fall short of God's standard. But the great news of Christianity is that God has made a way. You know, when we read this list, these are good things. A person who does this is a good person. But the problem is, is that outside of Christ, none of us are good. We can't be good enough to outgood God. Because he is good. He is good, and we are not. And because of that, the Bible says that we, will, we are separated from him. But the great news of the gospel is that God has made a way, not for us to be good, but to give us the goodness of his son, who came, who lived a perfect life. And Jesus on the cross takes our sin and our, the, the, the terrible things of our lives. He took them upon himself and he gave us his goodness. He gave us his righteousness. He died and he rose again for our justification. And so when I look at this list and I say, woe is me, the good news of the gospel is, is that you don't have to measure up because Jesus has done it for you. What we have to do is repent, turn from our sin, and trust in him. And I would not be doing my job up here if I did not say that this morning and encourage you that if you have not, repent of your sin and turn in faith to Jesus. The summary of all this, you know, we often ask ourselves at the end of a sermon, what is the point? And today I want to I read from 2 Peter chapter 3. You can turn there if you'd like. It's, gonna, it's a little bit of a long section. The point of this is that not only do we come to faith in Jesus, do we realize our own shortcomings, we repent, we turn to him in faith, but the point of all this is to not say to you, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do better this week. The point is that we, in Christ, need to grow. Peter uses the phrase here, grow in grace. Let me read this. Starting in verse 14. Therefore, beloved... 
Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. And here it is. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our mandate, the reason that we come to this place every Sunday is to be reminded to grow in our relationship with Jesus, to grow in the grace that he has given us. I believe that's part of my job up here is to remind you to strive towards growing in Christ. And as the psalm says in Psalm 15 says at the end, he who does these things shall never be moved. He who does these things shall never be shaken. And the word that is used there means that your footing, your feet will be on solid ground. You won't be shaken because you're standing on something solid. Without Christ, a person stands on a foundation. Well, it's really not a foundation at all. But a foundation that is not solid, is not stable, it's not safe. As the hymn says we're about to sing, it is shifting sand. But those of us who put our trust in Jesus and who strive to grow in him, we will not be moved. We will not be shaken. Because on Christ... We stand on a foundation that is firm. Let us pray together. Lord, I am amazed as I stand here and think about your goodness to us, not just how you sent your son to take our place, but how you give us the tools through your Holy Spirit to grow in our relationship with you, that you do not just leave us as we are, but that you but that you pursue us as your people to, to draw closer and closer to you, that you that through your Holy Spirit, you, you come into our lives and you pull us closer to you. We are amazed at your goodness today, Lord. And I pray that as we go about this week, that we would love those who we come in contact with, that we would strive to grow in our relationship with you. I thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.